Hi, Tim Ash here. Uh, I'm an expert on evolutionary psychology and digital persuasion, uh, as well as a keynote speaker and best-selling author. Today, Dove and I go crazy and we cover everything from altruism to autism to philosophy to tribalism to the only hope that this planet has for survival. You're going to hear it all, so stay tuned. Welcome back to another delicious episode of Curiosity Bites. We're back for the next part, part two, with our delicious guest, Tim Ash. He is the acknowledged authority on evolutionary psychology and neural marketing. He's a best-selling author of several books, including his latest, which is Unleash the Primal Brain. And the last uh, section we were talking about where he's from, we talked about the background of where he came from, how he came up. We talked about his university background, and we then talked about this um, movement into the not only understanding the brain, how he came to write the brain, uh, write the book about the brain, the evol and what a massive project that is. But that's kind of led us into this idea of um, culture and evolving cultures and why we have won, quote unquote, in the and become the the the, uh, the locus of of the planet. Um, let's just go a little bit further into this this piece that you finished up on there, Tim, in the last section, which is this piece around these dominant cultural uh, cohesive tribes. Um, do you see that as is is that is that a chicken or egg? Is my point right? Is is have we um, do we become culturally more cohesive? because we have a strong tribe or do we have a strong tribe because we're more culturally cohesive? Do you have a thought on that? Okay, well, so, so we're bred for cooperation. In order to spread culture, we have to be largely a cooperative species. So again, there's, there's exceptions to that. So at the mammalian level within our group, we fight for dominance, right? We get mm -hmm. the payoff of being dominant with serotonin and things like that and, um, and mating opportunities and power and you get to eat first, you know, in an evolutionary mm -hmm. sense. That's the mammalian part. But in the um, human part, the overlay of that that helps culture spread is the need for prestige. And this is kind of different things. So you're not bullying someone to dominate them. If you have knowledge in a particular domain, you want to pay it forward. You want to mentor somebody. You want to be that link in the chain and pass on that knowledge. Imagine if you're, um, you know, I know you do some martial arts as well, as I recall. You know, yep. Imagine you're a martial arts master and the art dies with you. I mean, how mm. horrible would that be, mm. right? So you, 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 you have to actually want to teach. Otherwise, it's like someone shows up, the sensei, teach me everything. And you're like, screw you. That took me decades of, to master that knowledge. Why should I spend any time on you? I mean, culture spread would die instantly if people didn't want to pay it forward and teach it. But people so, do that all the time. They, they, they do hoard their knowledge. I mean, there are people who die very much in that way. Yes, um, and their knowledge dies with them. And so the best culture spreaders, again, from an evolutionary standpoint, are the ones that passed on their knowledge and were cooperative. So we actually have a psychological payoff of prestige to want to teach others. And so and, you, it's, it's very different from mammal level dominance is my point. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating dance between those two places because when I look at, um, so we actually had this conversation last week, my wife and I, um, when I studied the Tao, 
um, that Lao Tzu um, didn't want to teach. Um, he didn't want anybody to know what he, he would teach everybody he met, but he didn't want to write anything down. He had no problem with you going away and teaching somebody else, but he didn't want to write anything down because he didn't want to create a religion. And yeah. one of the things that when I look at those things, one of the things I've seen is that there is not only a cultural spread, which as you say, could be very valuable, but there's also the intermingling there of the dominance, which is we're better. So we're culturally spreading, but because we're better. So we have a crusade, right? And we're going to take down all the Muslims, you know, and then we have the, you know, back, by the way, that's, I'm not talking in contemporary for those of you thinking that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a Christian crusade. Well, although again, who knows? Although, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, you know, but we have that, so the dominance of the culture um, and the dominance of this cooperative culture also leads to a dominance over other cultures. And that's what you were saying before about how yes, it, it does. I, and I get that, but that also has a strong dark side. Yes, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not sugarcoating anything. So my point is that we evolved to cooperate so we can spread culture in an unadulterated way. We basically just ape and copy and retransmit it. The ones that do it with the highest fidelity at the biggest speed win. Okay. Uh, and so, but here's the, the interesting thing. We also have inside the group pressure. And then of course I'll talk about competition in a sec, but the inside the group pressure is, how do you do that effectively? If you're not passing along the culture, if you want to go your own way and be an individual and not spread the knowledge, then we have this series of escalating consequences for you. Gossip, censure, removal of economic and mating opportunities. Um, and then what's horrible for all mammals, but especially human beings is isolation, being mm. thrown out of the group, ultimately maybe even being killed for these uh, social transgressions. So it's this escalating list of sanctions if you don't uh, play by the rules of your tribe. Uh, so that's, that's, that's definitely a dark side inside of the tribe. I just want to point that out. And then, like you said, there's the dark side of across tribes. Most of our evolution can be looked at as competition between groups. Once this mm -hmm. culture took off, the most effective groups were the ones that that survived. I mean, you can think of things like colonialization of the new world, right? Yeah. Anywhere where European settlers, you know, to use, to borrow Jared Diamond's uh, book title, had guns, germs, and steel on their side, they had better starting conditions and they came over and they wiped out native populations from Australia to the... Um, the Americas were 95% of the, the natives died within 50 years of uh, getting smallpox from, from Europe. You know, so they won because they were more cohesive and had better culture. Yeah. It's so, and so I guess the, the, the word I want to point out for people is this word better. Because better doesn't mean it's better than. It means it's more cohesive. Um, yes, more, more, more effective, more, more suited for its environment. Um, you know, so I, I mean, I can only imagine, say, go back to the days of ancient Greece, 
where you have these guys running around in tunics and um, you know with leather um, helmets and all of a sudden the Spartans show up and they have a phalanx and they have giant shields and 10-foot spears and they're trained to fight with each other. I mean, the, that's an obvious thing, but talk about cohesion, right? Exactly. Or the Roman military machine against, um, you know, the Germanic tribes and the same idea, you know, it's like, if you actually look at the technology they had, the organization they had, the cultural knowledge they had, um, they, how could you stop them? You, can't, you couldn't, that's what the Roman empire was built on. So those are obvious war examples, but the same things happen in the realm of ideas. Mm. Um, and religion isn't a great example of that. Yeah. So, so let, let's, let's shift a little bit to the brain for a minute, because I think I know for sure, um, even in the work that I've done, um, that the brain is probably, uh, physiologically at least, one of the greatest myths. I mean, I just hear people say things and I'm like, yeah, that was considered a truth 50, 75, 100 years ago, and it's still being sort of shoved around as if it's the truth. So mm -hmm. because you've done this work, brilliant work on evolutionary psychology and the development of the brain, talk to us about some of the myths that in the research of what you were coming out. What are some of the biggest myths that, that you just want to go up to people and go, what are you talking about? Yeah, well, you know, the, um, the one that I start the book with uh, is the lie of rationality. Absolutely. That's, that's, the biggest one. That's, that's been there for thousands of years. Again, going yeah. back to the Greeks, you know, that the thing that makes us special in the Greek sense or, you know, dominant in the Christian sense is our, you know, different from other animals is that, you know, what gives us dominion over everything else is that we're rational and we don't give in to our animal nature and the, our ability to reason and so on. And that's total bullshit. 95% um, of how our brain operates is on autopilot. Yeah. And it only wakes up that rational part for very specific situations. So the lie of rationality and that the best thing about us is this kind of cold Mr. Spock detached logic is, is like the biggest misconception and it pervades everything. You know. It's like, well, let's be reasonable. Let's be logical. You know, like that's a, that's a, uh, if you're not that, what's the opposite of that? Well, you're irrational. You're, you're unpredictable. You're random. You know, you're emotional. We ascribe a lot of that to, what do to you women, say, for example, like, oh, you're being too emotional. That's a, that's like a way to shut down a conversation. Well, good thing. We should bring all of ourselves to everything we do. So what do you say to, to, to that person who is clearly very invested in that identity of being a, a rational person? Uh, by the way, I call them rational lies. Mm -hmm. right? we, we rationalize, <laughs> which is just a way to make rational lies out of our emotional um, choices. Um, but what do you say to that person who is so heavily invested in saying, well, I'm not a very emotional person. I am more rational. Um, and I, um, you can't compare me to that quote, hysterical person over there who is highly emotional or that crazy ape throwing shit on the walls of the cage. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so the, 
that can be just literally disproven. There are people that have various brain issues where part of their brains are separated or not working. And, they, and they've shown that essentially what the logical quote unquote part of the brain can do is provide you with options. Mm -hmm. But he can't narrow them. That's an emotional response. I have an affinity for something, so I'm going to go towards that. Or I have an aversion to something, and I'm going to run away from it or be afraid of it. The narrowing of choices is emotional. You literally can't make a choice without emotion involved. And, and they've demonstrated this with, again, patients that have various you know, structural issues with their brains. So anyone says they're logical, no. That just gives you the options. That's all it does. Yeah, I, I, I find that whole piece fascinating. My work is really about, I say to people, you know, we are going to bring home the disenfranchised parts of yourself and, and the disenfranchised, mo the most disenfranchised part of yourself is the emotional parts of yourself that you have been shamed around. Yeah, um, you yeah, know, absolutely. so, you know, and, you know, that might be your sexuality, that might be your reaction to something at a particular time. But there is still an, um, even in the lifespan of a human being, there is a, there is a, uh, uh, an evolution even to the brain in that time. And I know you talk about this in the book, um, because the brain you're born with is not the brain you keep. And that, and that was when I was a kid that, you know, it was like, you know, this is the brain you got and this is the brain you're going to get. And if you drink, you're going to kill it. And, you know, and there's going to be brain cells and there's no, we didn't know anything about neuroplasticity. And we also didn't know that the brain you have when you're 18 versus the brain you have when you're 38 in simply in the connections that take place is vastly different. Tell us a little bit about that. Cause I think that's something that people need to understand that your teenage kid is not going to make decisions the way you that same kid is going to make it 38, 28 year, 20 years later. Yeah. And, and, and before I do, I want to talk about kind of a secondary lie, if I may, or a secondary Please. Yeah, myth you're absolutely. asking about. Um, you know, there's, there's this notion of, um, you know, like I said, of the rational brain or the logical brain, but there's also the, the stupid idea that that new part of the brain is there to solve math problems. It's to put people on the moon or design microwave ovens and, and that, you know, engineering and thinking and all of that is what it's for. It's not. Right. The reason that we develop those big frontal lobes is to model the social complexity of larger tribes. So we're by far the most social mammals on the planet. And, you know, we have a group size of about 100 to 200 people that we can maintain close ties to. And so what, what all of that is brain powers for is to say, it's like, oh, okay, if I go out with that woman whose cousin is the business partner of Dove, how's he going to feel about that? Right? And you have to is be able to capture that complexity. Okay? Right. And, and that's really, so our default state, what we use our brain for is social reasoning. We wake up, we do that. Anytime we're not doing two plus two is four, we within a fraction of an instant go back to modeling the social world and developing a better model and an updated model of it. So that's the second big myth is what's our new brain really for? It's all for social. And so Actually, I have my own theory. There's some backup to this, but you know, you hear about like 
um, the nerdy scientist or the awkward geniuses, the people that have a lot of social, um, or sorry, um, intellectual horsepower that are applying it to science and discovery and things like that are usually socially awkward. My personal belief is that many of them are what's on the autism spectrum. Yeah. And one of the things that 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 means is that they can't model human emotions or read facial expressions or and interact in nuanced ways like the rest of us can because we're devoting all of that brain power to social interactions. And so they can deploy that to making amazing art and engineering and things like that. So my personal take on it is that, like I say, microwave ovens and uh, the Mona Lisa and you know a lot of scientific discoveries are, are, are created by people that are actually aren't using their brain for what it was designed for. It's kind of a misfire, right? And that the, the value is not just in their discoveries, but in all of those social people that are spreading those discoveries and making practical use of them. So if you look at it from the tribal standpoint, the spreaders, again, of culture and knowledge are the most important piece. Yes. And uh, but so we're all kind of uh, drafting on the backs of and the accomplishments of a tiny percentage of people that are making scientific and cultural advancements. And the rest of us are super spreaders of that. But that, that in and of itself, you and I can spend a couple of hours on because that is fascinating piece. <laughs> And one of the things that I find interesting about that is some very recent research that I've been reading in probably less, less than two years was this hypothesis that autism may be the next um, evolution of, of the brain rather than, and we look at it as a defect, right. but the, the new science is looking at it as, no, this may actually be the evolution in that... Uh, we have enough social skills and that maybe this ability to remove ourselves socially and not be as um, uh, fearful of the tribal rejection because we don't care as much about the tribe has allowed us the intellectual horsepower to develop certain things. So it's, a, it's an interesting theory. Did you come yeah. across that much? Yeah, well, I, I have thought about it and I have seen it. Um, you know, the thing is, most people mistake what, how autism and similar disorders work. And the fact is they're not tuned out to social signals. It, what seems to actually be happening is they're hypersensitive to social signals. Yeah. And so in order to stop this fire hose of stuff impinging on you all the time, they actually mentally do these transformations like deconstruct the human face. So I can tell your micro expressions based on, you know, us on camera right now. Okay, but somebody that has autism will actually make a cubist type of Picasso portrait out of your face. So the eyes over here, the mouth is above it. You know, you can't experience it as a face with the unified expression. And so they're actually trying to do that to combat this hypersensitivity to social inputs. And that's an adaptation for that. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It's a, it's a, it's an adaptation that allows them to to go off and do other things, because yeah. um, they have to not be as concerned with the social condition because it's so intense for them. Um, that's right. That's, and that can be um, emotional cues, but it could also, you know, because it creates a a level of hyper vigilance for them. But it can also be. Um, 
things like sounds and smells and all those kinds yeah, of and, things. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and empathy isn't everything it's cracked up to be. It's not necessarily a good or universally useful thing. I mean, if you have too much empathy, that's its own problem. Yeah, uh, so, so yeah, I kind of want to explore that a little bit because um, when I, I'm going to reveal something that most people don't know about me, um, including some of my friends. Um, for a while, are you ready? Sure. <laughs> for a while, um, in my large array of careers, um, now remember, I've been doing what I do for 30 odd years, but I've done some other things along the way. And for a little while, I was part of a psychic tour where I traveled with psychics and I did psychic readings. And my, my um, success rate was in the high 90s. And people wow. were like, oh yeah, people <laughs> were like, how the hell did you do that? And I, I broke that down. I, being me, I was like, well, how do I do that? And, <laughs> and it was kind of like a, as a bit of a joke that I did it initially um, because I could read people. But I broke it down. Now, of course, I read micro cues, right? I mean, I, right. I, later on, I learned how to read micro cues consciously, but I read micro cues. But I found something entirely fascinating, and the entirely, and this is my research on this piece, subjective research, is that I would spend some time. Obviously, on this tour, I spent a lot of time with quote psychics, and here's what I found out about every psychic that I met. Every psychic that I met came from a fucked up childhood. Mm. And so as a result, they developed hypervigilance. So is it psychic or is it hypervigilance? So if yes. I throw as a cold reader, if I throw out a, again, I didn't know cold reading in those days, but as a cold reader, if I throw out an open question, and I read hypervigilantly the micro cues of that face and the micro expressions or the micro tonality of that face, I can pretty much tell whether I'm right or wrong and whether to pursue a direction. And that's why my results were so fast. But that was because I'd learned hypervigilance by growing up where I grew up, in the childhood that I grew up, in the environment that I grew up. All those yeah. things gave me that, you know, I used, I, yeah. one of my lines yeah. was when my mom would put the key in the door. I knew what mood to be in before she walked through that door because yeah, the yeah. way the power and the pressure and the lack thereof would tell me all kinds of things. It'd tell me whether she was depressed, whether she was, whether she was in a hyper or a low condition, whether she was in a good mood or a bad mood. Yeah. I could tell all those things that looks like in the context of the way the world sees it psychic. But what it is, mm -hmm. is hypervigilance. And autism is kind of a hypervigilance. Yes. Yeah, I agree. With that. And then I think what you said about adversity is really interesting. I had my own theory when I was in graduate school that everybody that stuck around for a PhD had to have some very strong formative forces in their early life. You know, and, um, and I said, oh, I'm the exception to that. You know, well, no, I've had some deep bucketing work on my own personal development. And uh, we all have our crap to deal with but so i'm a product of some pretty extreme forces myself you know so i, I definitely agree that 
that's the not the silver lining, but the useful aspect of that is that you develop certain abilities from just the, having a survive standpoint that can also serve you in, in other spheres. Well, that's why I wanted to bring it. To, that's why I wanted to. That's why I decided to go with this, Tim, is because you know we're talking about the brain. So you know there is a, and we're probably going to have to get into it at some point. But the distinction between the brain and the mind, because um, people that's a that's a huge challenge for people anyway but in this the evolutionary of the beginning of man to now and then there's the evolutionary of the individual which is neuroplasticity uh, and that i'm not you you're not me but we're in a we're in a cultural tribe um and the adaptiveness or the adaptability of um, what's happened to me in my childhood or my formative years that has formed and created me and given me curses that I could turn into, into blessings or gifts or curses that I turned into a downward spiral and, and devolved into. So I think that, you know, it's really interesting in this looking at the evolution of the individual brain or the development of that individual brain in the context of adaptability, neuroplasticity. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, the, the one thing that um, um, this kind of makes me think about what I wrote about memory in the book. And, and there's, there's some huge misconceptions. I mean, I'm sorry if you're a science fiction fan and I'm about to burst your bubble, but if you ever watched any of that Black Mirror or any of those shows, there's this kind of like, oh, let's rewind your life and you have a life review and you can do that. There's no such thing as perfect memories and there's no life recording. You can never put someone's brain into a computer and have every, every aspect of their sentience. So kind of to your mm -hmm. question about mind and brain, the brain is there to help you survive. And so, and memory and is basically like this wild distorted echo of things that might've happened to us. The strongest memories are formed under multiple stimuli and strong emotional reactions. So multi-sensory, you know, if you're on a roller coaster and the wind's whipping in your hair and you're, you know, you're, the inner ear is conspiring with your stomach to evacuate your lunch and all of that stuff, all those G-forces, that's something you remember. And most of us do. I mean, I don't know if you ever jumped out of a plane. I haven't, but I mean, I'm sure you remember your first skydive, right? Mm -hmm. Your first kiss. But do you remember your hundredth kiss? No. Been there, done them. Your thousandth kiss? Uh, probably not. And so memory is this really fickle thing. And the, the thing about the primal brain is it's a forgetting machine. There's all of this information impinging on you every second. Temperature, the pressure on your butt right now as you're sitting in that chair. For separation, which is like the relationship of every joint in your body, which is why when you eat food, you don't stick the fork into your forehead or something. Well, you're aware not, of all of those. Today. Yeah, not today. <laughs> Congratulations. Today. I used to put a cork on mine and kept it safer. Anyway, <laughs> the point is that uh, all of this information we can't possibly store or process, and we don't even need to attend to. So it's just flushed. Our, our primal brain is a forgetting machine. Mm -hmm. so it just It doesn't even enter our consciousness as a, as a memory, it doesn't get stored. There's also issues about which memories get stored, but most things aren't even noticed. So basically the way I think of a human being is you are this second's human being. It's kind of like that Chinese 
saying of you can't step into the same river twice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you are the ever unfolding present moment. And you may have stories you tell yourself about how you, who you used to be in the past based on faded, distorted memories of some of those events. But there's no such thing as me with the continuity over your whole life. So your brain is this second's brain, and that's all there is. And I think that that is such an important piece of demystifying the brain and demythologizing demytholo the brain. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now for me. Um, <laughs> that is that, that, you know, we, we are so, you know, we talked about tribalism, but I, I, I talked, one of the things I wrote about was personal tribalism, which is identity. And, you know, this claiming that this is me and we are, the research is there. We are very attached to that identity piece and people will do the things that, um, identify themselves you know they will stay solidly connected to a decision they've made i know you know this with with um your neuromarketing stuff if people have made a decision they're gonna stick to that yeah, consistency decision. and commitment uh, robert cialdini was uh yeah, kind enough to do a, a blurb for my book i mean he, he he's done some fantastic research in that area right so the, i mean this this commitment to the identity is so inlaid and embedded you know and one of the things i i you know i talked about i wrote a lot about the the uh the 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 general election in the u.s and, and trump being elected and 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 i and somebody asked me very recently in an interview why do you think people are so like mm, you know I, i'm trump all the way and i said well i think there's a couple of things that are at fault here one is what I call presumptive knowledge. And presumptive knowledge is I know it, therefore I assume everybody knows it. So there are things to me because of who I am that are dynamically clear. I mean, like neon sign clear that this is somebody who is a narcissist, that this is somebody who is, um, Sociopath, con man, Soci we could go on. Yeah, I I There's a whole bunch of labels we can put on that, but I've not sat down with him and examined him, so it's unfair. But I can still, I, I can still have an awareness of those things and say, you know, if I was examining him, I'm pretty sure I would come up with these things. Those things are glaring to me, but they're not to other people, and that's my, that's my presumptive Okay, knowledge. okay, so can I stop you? Yeah, I please. don't think they're not clear to other people. I think that they have a values hierarchy, which has other things that, pardon me, trumps that. Yes. It's not that they're not aware of his character flaws. I mean, every evangelical Christian knows he has three wives and pays hookers and covers it up. I mean, you can't not know that, okay? But there's something that trumps that and, and for to spread these cultural values. So the way that, you know, kind of my base, base understanding of U.S. politics and Trump supporters during this time is that it's the politics of humiliation. One of the most important values that all human beings have needs is for acknowledgement, being yes. seen, being heard, being appreciated yep. for who you are with, with you know, unconditional love, whatever you want to call it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and just the, the simple act of saying, I see you is the most transformative thing that we can give somebody. I that agree. in itself is a mitzvah, it's a blessing, okay? I see you, I hear you, I understand you. 
And whether he does anything with it, he's basically saying, I see you. Absolutely. And that is more important than anything else. To, well, to that's, that's what I'm saying. I mean, like I said, those judgments that I'm putting on it um, are my presumptive knowledge because I go, well, can't everybody see that? Um, and, and as you said, I don't disagree that they can see it. They don't maybe label it in the way I do because of my, my training or whatever it is. But the other piece of it is what I was just going to say is, is what you just said, which is that it doesn't matter whether they can see it or not. It matters whether they feel seen or not. And yes. that's the distinction. It's not whether they see it, it's whether they feel seen. We far, we're far more concerned with being seen than seeing. And that, you know, yeah, and, and there is, there's another, we're interested. Yeah, and that, that's true. And then there's a really powerful thing, again, back to the culture idea of um, in times of uncertainty, people fall back on their cultural knowledge on their mm. learned knowledge as opposed to their own direct experience. This is really, really an important way to understand populist movements in particular. Um, the, when we're uncertain, we say, what do I do? You're standing in front of two restaurants. They both look equally good. One's got a line in front of it, one's empty. Which one are you going to want to go to? Mm -hmm. Right? You're the one that's got a line. You're going to go with everybody oh, else in the herd. It's like, that must be a good one. There's a line in front. That's how you're going to make that decision, right? I don't know. Now, had you eaten at both those restaurants, you go, they're about the same. That one's got no weight. I'm going to go there, mm -hmm. right? So it, when we don't know something and the stakes are often much higher than where to eat, um, we fall back under uh, to the consensus of the people around us. So we don't trust our own eyes. We don't trust our own direct experience. We go back to the learned cultural knowledge. And so it really depends on which cultural tribe you were raised in. And all autocrats activate that. I think you've seen that, like the 14 signs of fascism, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how to activate that stuff in people and how you can tell whether that transition's happening. So, you know, that's what populists always do. They fear monger. They say, it's, I'm on your side and there's the other or the others. Yeah. and uh, demonize and dehumanize them. It's an old playbook and it works. That's why, that's why politicians use it. Yeah, I've said uh, for years that if we, if, we, if we want to stop uh, the devastation we do in the world, we have to stop othering. The greatest challenge to, to that is that we're tribal. And so, and yeah. the only way to get around that is to recognize that we are a tribe of humans. Uh, and then what we'll do is we'll go out and murder all the rest of the animals. Uh, so this, and so the, the okay. tribe that we have to be, I believe, is the tribe of earthlings. So the squirrel is an earthling. The lion is an earthling. The insect is an earthling. I'm an oh, earthling. God, I'm so glad you brought this up because... Uh, I, I just want to share something that's not in the book, but I found fascinating from a sociological perspective. They did some uh, surveys and figured out what makes conservative people versus progressive, let's call them people, the way they are. And so, like you say, if we look at tribes, we can do concentric circles. Yep. So there's me, there's my immediate family, there's my extended family, there's my synagogue or church there's my town my state my country the world there's all living things in the world there's the universe 
right? So you can keep going out. And so what they found was fascinating to me is that I guess it's conservative in the not political sense, but you know, more cautious sense. That's mm -hmm. part of the gene pool. Those people had more localized tribes. Yes. Versus progressive people had uh, more universal tribes. So there's going to be progressive people who care about the treatment of animals, right? Because that's part of life on earth. That's part of the earthling tribe you suggest, right? Whereas, you know, we can look at the same event, like families are being separated at the U.S. border and the kids are being kept in cages. Now to the universalists and the progressive people, that's like, that's inhuman. So at the level of you know, humanity, I can't let that stand. Whereas to the conservative people say, well, they don't, they don't live in my town and they don't have the same color skin, so they're not part of my tribe. It's okay they're in a cage because that's not my sphere of concern, which is much more local. Mm -hmm. So I found that to be fascinating. So you can kind of predict people's politics based on this, where they attach to tribes. Yeah. Uh, um, and I'm trying to remember who said it, but uh, some great thinker who had said that the way to cure the world is, to, is, is through travel. Yes. Uh, and and you know, it's part of the problem of, of coronavirus has happened is that we <laughs> stopped traveling. And that concerns me particularly if the conspiracy theorists are right, and I'm not saying they're wrong or right, <laughs> um, and that we have to be vaccinated to travel in the future, uh, <laughs> we'll get a greater level of tribalism because it is only, I mean, I've never met a well-traveled person who is narrow-minded. I haven't. Right. I've, I've just never met them. Yeah. And so, so there's a, there is a kind of chicken or egg issue there though, is the ones that choose to travel might be the more open-minded ones. So it's like exactly. a not it's a causality a thing, potentially, but anyway, but no, I get your point. And that's actually, I, my last chapter in my book, the, the next to last actually is a prescription for li living a more primal life and how to be a better human being and one or sorry, the last chapter and it is to attach to larger tribes. It's exactly your prescription. Uh, I believe that wholeheartedly. And I think the best thing you can do, and they've shown this, you know, uh, Marshall uh, Goldsmith's work on nonviolent communication. You can sit down Arabs and Israelis who have lost children in the wars between them and get them to talk. That, that dialogue of understanding that the other is just like you and that there's universal stuff uh, that binds you much more closely than the differences that separate you that that's what we have to keep doing pouring back into the center into the building of the bridges not the walls and that's the only hope for this planet and it's quickly running out i fear and that's why this show is called curiosity bites because i believe with every fiber of my being that curiosity is the cure for the world if we can become curious about ourselves about each other and about the world at large we're going to be better people and with that, Amen, my brother. And thank you, sir. This particular section of the show, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Tim Ash, who is uh, the author of Unleash Your Primal Brain. This is a fascinating conversation. I hope you'll stay with us and come back for part three of the show, where we're going to really dive into some juicy, delicious stuff. We'll see you in two.